the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Looking forward to a conversation with Josh McDowell. Uh, he is with Crew, and Josh McDowell Ministries is involved in all kinds of things. But most recently, he's published a paper on what the church might expect following COVID-19 and the challenges that predated the pandemic that will only be exacerbated by it. So this is a document to help the church prepare for post-COVID-19 living. So Josh McDowell will join us later this hour. So I'm looking forward to that. Want to mention that James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has made the use of his office available for the purpose of programming. And so uh, grateful for these guys who are doing their part. Taking a look at some of the headline news, President Trump on Tuesday denied he was declaring mission accomplished in the U.S. fight against coronavirus. Has his administration confirmed being in talks to potentially wind down the coronavirus task force, even as the number of COVID-19 cases continue to grow and parts of the economy begin to reopen? The president defended the uh, talks on Tuesday while speaking to the media in Phoenix, where he was touring a mask production facility, saying his advisors were continuing to examine the virus very closely and the doctors on the task force would continue to make their voices heard. We can't keep our country closed for the next five years, the president said. We've learned a lot about the coronavirus. Vice President Pence, who was, um, excuse me, led the task force, said on Thursday that White House officials were having conversations about finishing up the group's business and instead having agencies take over the work, specifically mentioning the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. The vice president said, though, that the earliest the agencies could take over the group's responsibilities would be by Memorial Day or early June. Well, the Trump administration's discussions about winding down the task force come as a revised mortality model from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation predicts coronavirus deaths in the U.S. will nearly double to 135,000 through August. Well, the office of former President Barack Obama in March privately bashed Senate Republicans' investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden and his son in Ukraine, a probe it deemed is leading uh, uh, lending rather credence to a Russian disinformation campaign, according to a letter obtained by Fox News. The letter addressed to the National Archives and Records Administration, uh, which manages presidential records, was written in response to a request on the 21st of November in 2019 by Republican Senators uh, Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson for Obama administration records on Ukraine-related meetings. It referred to their requests as improper use of the NARA's uh, release terms and a, a supposed effort to shift the blame for Russian interference in the 2016 election to Ukraine. For House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the sexual assault allegations against presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden are now a closed issue, one that's no longer worth discussing. My what a change. Well, the San Francisco Democrat did, however, agree with Biden's request for a search of Senate documents held by the National Archives to see if any proof exists of a complaint by former Senate staffer Tara Reid sexual assault occurred. The speaker shared her views Tuesday in an interview with NSNBC, Ari Melber, 
It was the host who asked Pelosi whether she considered the case against Biden, meaning the allegation by Reid, to be a closed issue. Well, it is for me, Pelosi responded. Biden's records, uh, by the way, on, uh, are on total lockdown despite requests for uh, to unseal purported Reid complaints. And Biden's allegations reverberate on the Senate campaign trail as Democrats face accusations of a double standard. Also, the latest from Fox News, Nordstrom says they're closing 16 stores in the coronavirus fallout. Tyson Foods is reopening their pork plant in Iowa. And the NYSE is yet to determine when the floor will be open for coronavirus safety measures uh, in order to continue. While in Arizona, the president said, we're going to build the greatest economy in the world again. I did it once. We're going to do it again. And that's what we're starting. I view these last couple of days as the beginning, as the Washington Times reported. There are some making dire predictions of deaths in states if they continue to end the lockdown in the New York Post. And Molly Hemingway looks at the media attacks on South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, who has strongly encouraged social distancing measures but not used government force to accomplish public health goals. A sheriff here in Oregon is refusing to cite non-essential businesses, noting that we are in a free society and a strange coronavirus-related illness has hit children in some of the country's hotspots. Well, the liberal Supreme Court justice, of, uh, who is 87 years old, has been sent to the hospital. We're talking about RBG. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as she is uh, often referred to by her initials, was sent to the hospital today with a gallbladder infection. And Adam Schiff wants um, Dr. Fauci to help get Trump as he seeks to ramp up his next witch hunt. From Mike Huckabee, if you take conversations, candid conversations that a president can have with the people surrounding him, and you start having politically charged, hateful people like uh, exist in the Democrat House just trying to expose it and cause trouble in the midst of the pandemic, Presidents will never surround themselves with people like Dr. Fauci. Again, that's the danger that we face. So says one columnist, Mike Huckabee. San Francisco has banned police from wearing thin blue line face masks because anti-cop leftists don't like them, the police officers or the masks. UK judges say women can't be legally listed as a child. I should say a woman cannot be legally listed as a child's father. She identifies as a he now, and the judges are going with science just this once. And a group is suing to stop California Governor Newsom from giving $75 million to illegal aliens. Governor Gavin Newsom doesn't believe it's fair for the federal government that they didn't give stimulus money to people living in the state illegally. So he's taking it from California taxpayers. Because as we know, California taxpayers have so much spare cash lying around. And The Hill says this, it could be really, really hot in 2070. I don't know if you're going to be here then. I'm hoping I'm elsewhere by that time. It's entertaining when stories push climate disasters 50 years out. That way nobody can be held accountable for whether or not they actually come true. On this day in history, May the 6th, 2019, Britain's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, or at least they were, welcomed their firstborn child, a baby boy, they would call Archie. 1889, the Paris Exposition formally opens, featuring the just-completed Eiffel Tower. And on this day in history, 1937, the hydrogen-filled German airship Hindenburg catches fire and crashes while attempting to dock in Lakehurst, New Jersey. 35 of the 97 people on board were killed, along with crewmen on the ground. 1974, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt resigns after one of his aides was exposed as an East German spy. 2014, the Vatican discloses that over the past decade, if defrocked 848 priests who raped or molested children and sanctioned another 2,572 with lesser penalties. And in 2019, 
Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin denies House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal's request for President Trump's tax returns, saying the request lacked a legitimate legislative purpose. Not yet heard the end of that back and forth argument. Well, as mentioned, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized with an infection caused by a gallstone, the court announced yesterday, adding that she's expected to remain in the hospital for a day or two. The 87-year-old underwent non-surgical treatment for acute, well, something, I'm not even going to attempt to mispronounce it, a benign gallbladder condition at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore on Tuesday. The justice had undergone outpatient tests at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington Monday uh, following oral arguments with the court. She participated, by the way, in those arguments, which confirmed that she had a gallstone blocking her cystic duct, resulting in an infection. The justice is resting comfortably and plans to participate in the oral argument teleconference tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, remotely from the hospital, the Supreme Court said in a statement. Wednesday's case, set to be argued via teleconference due to the coronavirus, has involved a lengthy battle spanning eight years with the Little Sisters of the Poor, a religious group serving the poor and elderly. All justices are participating via phone, so Ginsburg should have no impediments to staying involved in the case. She has faced a slew of hurdles concerning her health, fueling speculation that her possible exit from the court could provide an opportunity for President Trump to appoint a third justice to the bench. However, she consistently has slapped down any notion that she that her departure from the nation's highest court was imminent, insisting that she'd like to remain on the bench until she's 90 years old, or at least in her 90s. Meanwhile, a new report shows that Oregon leads the nation with the highest rates of depression. Put four Oregonians in a room, it's estimated that one of them is struggling with mental health. A new report ranks the state as number one for the percentage of people dealing with depression. We analyze CDC data on depression rates in each state, says the uh, analyst. He says they look at data over the last five years in which he says depression has increased by about 9%. Local family counselor Chain Brandt of Peace Health says this could be for a variety of reasons. We'll talk more about that when Josh McJowl joins us in our next couple of segments uh, later in the hour. He's going to talk with us about uh, what the church can expect as a result of COVID-19 and how we need to be prepared to address some of the challenges that uh, are coming. So we'll get into that with him when he joins us later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The Little Sisters of the Poor are still battling on two fronts with regard to provisions of Obamacare that would require them to violate their deeply held religious convictions. Now, we've been following this now for years, and I think many have been under the impression that the issues have been resolved. After all, the Supreme Court uh, said that it needed to be resolved. The president issued um, uh, some statements with regard to not violating their religious beliefs. But today, oral arguments were heard before the U.S. Supreme Court Uh, to defend the rights of the Little Sisters of the Poor, to do what they do, and are so needed during this current pandemic. Well, here to talk with us about all of this is Ashley McGuire. She's a senior fellow with the Catholic Association, and I so appreciate a a commentary she recently wrote on the subject to help keep us informed and up to date. And I hope praying uh, for these Little Sisters of the Poor who are continuing to minister to those who are most vulnerable, particularly during this pandemic, but certainly before and following, uh, will continue to do the work of the Lord. Ashley McGuire, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I have to admit, I'm just so frustrated and disgusted with the fact that they are continuing to have to battle on uh, 
on these issues before the Supreme Court once again. Can you bring our listeners up to date as to what has happened since they were last in the news and why they're before the Supreme Court again? Sure. So the Supreme Court several years ago heard their case. Um, Their case was they were protesting certain provisions in the Affordable Care Act that would require employers, regardless of their religious beliefs, to pay for things like abortion pills in their health care plans. This obviously violates the teachings of the Catholic Church and the beliefs of these nuns. And so what the Supreme Court said was, they said to the federal government, which at the time was under the control of President Obama, you have to figure out an accommodation for these nuns that does not violate their deeply held beliefs. Okay, end of story, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) You would think. And then we have a change of administration. When President Trump comes out, issues an executive order that says employers can never be forced to violate their consciences with their health care plans, thinking this will resolve the issue. Well, then several state attorney generals sued, saying literally this is what they allege, that the president does not have the authority to do that. He can't say basically that the First Amendment applies to employers and their health care plans um, so that is what eventually resulted in the Little Sisters being back in the Supreme Court today um, and these attorney generals having to defend their position, which is basically that they can overrule the president and still force the Little Sisters of the poor to provide things like abortion pills in their plans. And what is just so, I think, flabbergasting to people is that this is happening in the middle of the worst health pandemic our country has experienced in a century. And these women, I mean, these women, their specific calling is to take care of uh, sick and dying, poor elderly people. So the people that are the population that is the most vulnerable, most hardest hit by the coronavirus crisis. And so it's not enough that their nursing homes are inundated with sort of death and, and sickness They've got to go to the Supreme Court and ask for the right to do that without having to be a dispensary for abortion pills. Yeah, just absolutely extraordinary. But, of course, uh, they're being made an example of. And to give in on this case uh, means the dominoes might fall and they'll lose this in in many other cases where conscience is uh, involved. And I'm referring to the attorneys general, Xavier Becara and Josh Shapiro uh, and friends. Now, um, the Supreme Court had already said, as you pointed out, told the federal government it must settle with the Little Sisters in such a way that their conscience rights are not compromised. Shouldn't that have settled it? And how is it that because the next president made a statement that essentially reflects the uh, the will of the Supreme Court, how is it that this is able to go on? Why didn't they at that point accommodate these Little Sisters of the poor? Well, they tried these sort of legal flights of hand where they said, okay, um, if you have an employee that wants this birth control, you have to certify on this paper and they can take this, but you don't provide it and they can take the certification and go get it somewhere else. And the little sisters are saying, we're still facilitating this here. And, and the lawyers for the little sisters of the poor have been saying from day one, it's this simple. You can't force employers to provide something that violates their deeply held beliefs. If the government feels so strongly that women need to have free abortion pills, the government can provide them directly using things like Title X funding, these clinics that are all around the country. You know, tell women they can just walk in and get them from some federally provided source. Why Mm -hmm. do you have to have the little sisters signing papers? It's 
still basically, the word they use is it's still hijacking their plans, their health care plans as a vehicle. And I think, you know, to back up and answer your question, why isn't this enough? I, I think it sort of reveals that behind sort of the agenda on these issues, um, there's sort of an insatiable extremism. They, they want people to be who oppose it to be implicit, whether it's forcing yes. doctors to, per, to perform abortions, forcing Catholic hospitals to perform sex change operations. It's not enough to provide it free from the government. They want to involve people, even if it opposes their deeply held beliefs. And I think the fact that a global pandemic wasn't enough to make these men relent and say, okay, this is just not optically, this is not good. This is, we are, you know, our efforts are better used elsewhere shows how sort of uh, vehement they feel about this. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's frightening. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Little Sisters homes uh, and who these nuns are and who they serve, because I think that puts puts it into perspective that people can uh, understand and support these women even more. No, they have a very unique calling. They exist yes. to take care of those who are um, basically people who would otherwise die on the streets, um, elderly people who would die homeless, elderly people who would die in some kind of a horrifically abusive situation or a state-run um, institution. And so they bring people in regardless of their religion. So the Little Sisters are deep, you know, women of deep faith, but that doesn't mean that they discriminate on the basis of religion or um, sex or disability for those that they bring in. But um, the people that they're taking care of are literally the most vulnerable population in the United States right now. Um, they're people with pre-existing conditions. They're already sick. They're elderly and they're poor, so they don't have access to good medical care. Um, so you've got, you know, one of their nursing homes had one fifth of its population has died of coronavirus. And the nuns themselves are getting sick. Um, the priests that tend to the nuns are getting sick. And, uh, you know, as, as I sort of put it in my piece, they're kind of, they're sort of at the front lines. They're first responders of a different sort. Yes. You know, they don't, they're not nurse, they're not trained nurses, although many of them do have uh, a quite a bit of medical expertise. But um, they're, they're sort of at the front lines in a different way, dealing with the hardest hit populations. Um, you know, they don't do it for profit. Um, and it's their life calling. And the thing that I think is the most beautiful about, about their work is that um, they take people who would otherwise sort of die in a lonely and destitute way and give them a very dignified and happy death. Um, and that's a gift that has no value. Yeah. You point out in your commentary that nuns founded our modern day healthcare system and many of the most famous hospitals in this country were founded by nuns going straight to, not away from, the sick during outbreaks and pandemics. Be it the Franciscan sisters who started the Mayo Clinic to treat lepers or the sisters of, of charity who founded St. Vincent's Hospital in the wake of the cholera epidemic, St. Vincent's went on to be at the epicenter of the AIDS outbreak and now the COVID-19 pandemic. So putting it into the broader context, these are women who have dedicated themselves to serving the poor and the um, the elderly and those who are, are uh, most vulnerable um, among us. And now they have to be distracted by this latest effort on the part of um, the extremists who insist that you violate your conscience uh, in order to reflect their worldview. And it's just to say that it's maddening is, is certainly an understatement. What's happening now in the court and what do you expect in the days ahead? Well, you know, uh, the justices seem to express 
exasperation um, at why this is still going on. And, you know, I think the justices who are sympathetic to the First Amendment arguments of the Little Sisters are exasperated that there's people like these attorney generals who are still harassing them. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, my, I listened to most of the oral argument. My sense was they're kind of at an impasse. Um, but ultimately I think the court in the last really decade has ruled heavily in favor of religious freedom and often with strong rulings, um, and already ruled in the Hobby Lobby case, which was dealing with Mm -hmm. this issue, but in the private sector, uh, they still ruled, um, in favor of the religious liberty claims of the plaintiffs. So, you know, I think there's a cautious optimism that the Little Sisters will win. But, you know, even if they do, I think what it, what the case belies is that um, this is not going, this sort of clash between ideologues who are increasingly, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for, sort of unrelenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and And then also the clash between them and between American citizens who are also kind of putting their feet down and saying, no, like you can't, you know, that's what's so impressive about the little sisters is, you know, they, the government keeps trying to say, this is just a piece of paper. Like, why can't you? And they're saying, you know, no, it's, it's a piece of paper that represents our conscience and we're not going to relent. And, um, so it's, it's a very sort of, definitive and important conflict, I think, that uh, reflects something broader that's happening in our country. So I think, you know, I think we're hopeful that the Little Sisters will win and hopefully resolve this specific issue. But then you look around the country and you see all these other efforts to make Catholic hospitals perform abortions. You know, we have this rise of the issue of assisted suicide. Will doctors be forced to dispense assisted suicide drugs? You know, pushing pharmacists to dispense abortion pills. And so it's the broader conflict is not going away. But I so appreciate the courage of these women uh, to choose not to violate their conscience and to stand up against these powerful uh, men. Um, and I, I hope and pray that they will be successful. But, but mostly I appreciate that they have fought the good fight. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for bringing us up to date. We'll certainly keep them in our prayers and watch uh, the Supreme Court. I'm guessing we won't have a decision until uh, probably late summer, but we'll certainly watch with great interest and keep the little sisters of the poor in our prayers as they are ministering to the most vulnerable during this pandemic. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Again, Ashley McGuire, Senior Fellow with the Catholic Association. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Josh McDowell on what the church can expect post-COVID-19 and how we might prepare. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. coronavirus uh, cases show signs of leveling off. Uh, One of our renowned Christian apologists is urging the church to prepare for an avalanche of new challenges. Following federal and state governments' discussions about plans to reopen parts of the nation in May and June, best-selling author Josh McDowell has released an online document titled What Comes Next, outlining challenges the church, parachurch organizations, and individuals are going to likely face in the wake of COVID-19. Now, he's compiled uh, compiled more than a thousand hours of church research over 55 years, uh, social distancing, quarantines, lockdowns, government tactics enacted to help flatten the curb against the novel coronavirus are having an adverse effect on mental health and emotional health in church, he says. And we're going to talk about 
uh, not only what's happening now, but what we can expect once uh, we are allowed to be in one another's presence once again, in order that we might be prepared to minister as needed. Well, Josh McDowell is a familiar name to all of you. In 1961, he joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ International. Not long after, he started the Josh McDowell ministry to reach young people worldwide with the truth and the love of Jesus. He's well known as an articulate speaker. He has addressed more than 46 million people, giving over 27,200 talks in 139 countries. I need you to stop and take my breath just saying it, let alone him having done it. As he's traveled, he quickly realized that uh, where people were sick, homeless, and hungry, words were not enough. So in 91, he founded Operation Carelift to meet the physical and spiritual needs, uh, and he discovered uh, those needs in orphanages and hospitals, schools, prisons, and elsewhere. He has written or co-authored 151 books in 128 languages, more than a carpenter among them, evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, Josh McDowell Ministries is a crew ministry, the U.S. Division of Campus Crusade for Christ International, and he joins us today whew, to talk about uh, what the church might expect next. Josh McDowell, I sure hope welcome. you recorded that. <laughs> I hope you recorded that. That's <laughs> well, the best introduction I've had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you merited one of those kinds of introductions. Oh, welcome you're gracious, you so much. <laughs> well, This is really quite an event that we are witnessing in that we are uh, required to socially distance from one another. And with that isolation, as you point out in this document that I referenced, uh, 10 challenges facing the church and the, the part that focuses on the coronavirus, um, it is exacerbating some problems that we've already seen. And the church, you suggest, needs to be ready. Give us kind of a, uh, a loose overview. Well, the, the thing is, the virus and the lockdown has not caused any of this. What it has done is exasperated it. Three, four months ago, of every country in the world, every continent globally, there were three major epidemics, pornography, loneliness, and depression. All over the world. This was before anybody even knew about the virus. And so along comes the virus, and what it does, it feeds into these three things. When you become... Uh, lockdown, you're isolated, the stress, the fear, the anxiety it causes, the lack of knowing what's going to happen and all, all of that feeds into pornography, loneliness, and depression. And what I'm trying to get across to, to parents and churches and educators, when we come out of this, which would be in a month maybe or two months, when we come out of this, we better be ready to address pornography, loneliness, and depression. Because if these three were epidemics before the lockdown, think of what they're going to be after the lockdown. The call-in, the call centers for help, emotionally and all, has gone up 500%. Mm. That's huge. And um, most people don't know where to turn to. And so that's why I did that document, and I'm spending so much time on my website preparing things to help people in loneliness, pornography, and depression, because it's, it's here, but we're not aware of it yet. Now, what would you attribute this um, epidemic prior to COVID-19, uh, this loneliness, addiction to pornography, and so on, that's, uh, that's a pandemic, if you will, all over the globe, to what do you attribute um, these these elements that are undermining a, a, a life of uh, that's thriving? Well, there's two things for what I'm going to say. One, 
It mostly started around 2006, 2008, all over the world. Second, there's one item that is in every culture of the world, in the jungles everywhere, and that's the cell phone. And the cell phone came out, the smartphone, about 2007, 2008. And what is happening, especially those 35 and under, they're learning to communicate with their thumbs not with their tongues. Through the internet, we are connecting, but we're not relating. Mm. And we were made for relationships. Uh, Harvard, Harvard did an 80-year study. Can you imagine that, 80 years? It started during the Great Depression, and they just released it. And they wanted to find out, is there one thing that would determine happiness and healthiness later in life? Is there anything? After 80 years of research, they found one thing, and that was relationships. didn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated, uneducated, churched or not churched, whatever. Relationships was a key factor into health and happiness. And that is true today, but we're learning to connect with our thumbs. And so that, there's many reasons for it. Another cause of it is the breakdown of the father relationship which has just gradually diminished over the years. It's starting to correct itself now. But when a child grows up without a loving, intimate connection with their father, there's tremendous mental health, emotional consequences in their life. And one is loneliness. Another is uh, depression. And so uh, that's why I've tried to make such an issue of this and people can go to my website, josh.org, forward slash loneliness. I have incredible material there. You Thanks. can download it all free. Or you do forward slash depression, the same thing. Forward slash pornography, the same thing. Forward slash anxiety, the same thing. I have material. I've researched, documented it all, broken it out into easy understanding. And on all those issues, you can download it free at josh.org. I put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, so if you want to check that out, and maybe you're in your car and you can't write that uh, that reference down, but I'd encourage our listeners to do just that. Now, one of the documents that you uh, produce there is what comes next. What will life be like after COVID nineteen pandemic? And you reflect on possible trends that we might. Uh, anticipate the first that you write is the economic climate. I think it's difficult to fully appreciate what life might be like uh, when things open up for those who have suffered the greatest economic harm. Can you talk a bit about the economic climate and how we might anticipate what to expect? I think it's going to be better and it would be some significant difference. Uh, And it wasn't really much of it was not caused by the virus again. Mm -hmm. Let me show you what I mean. Back three, four months ago, 12, 15 of the top businesses in the United States, uh, four-walled box stores and things, uh, like Pier 1 Imports and others, uh, were going to go into bankruptcy. Why? It's not all bad. It's because of the Internet, of Target, uh, Oh, Walmart and the Internet, but mainly because of Amazon. And way back before the lockdown and the virus scare, uh, the economy was going to change. And so now when we come out of this, most of those that were going to go into bankruptcy 
will not recover from the virus. But out of it, I believe, are going to come, we're going to know new businesses and things and ideas that we never dreamed would ever happen. And it could well be better. But it's going to be mighty hard for some people. Yeah. But they'll come through. They'll, Americans have a, a backbone, and we'll come through all of this in better shape. I absolutely believe that. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue to work our way through this document. One of the things that you say is that the spiritual climate will have changed. There's a greater interest in spiritual things, but not necessarily interest in churches. We'll talk about that when we return. Once again, we're talking with best-selling author Josh McDowell. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm so thrilled that Josh McDowell is with us from Josh McDowell Ministries and best-selling author. We're talking about a document that he uh, produced, and you can access on his uh, webpage. Um, what comes next? What will life be like after COVID-19 pandemic? Reflections on possible trends. We mentioned the first, the, the economic climate that will change and could be um, better, but also that the spiritual climate is uh, is going to be different, that there's a shift in that in the spiritual climate, in that there's greater interest in spiritual things. But I thought it was interesting that you made the point, but not necessarily interest in church, that people are seeking to understand the current reality and their uh, their place in it. Um, but the church is going to be challenged with funneling that interest uh, toward Christ. Can you talk a little bit about the spiritual climate and the challenge for the church? Yes. During this lockdown with everyone all over the world, there hasn't been much of an issue of the church. The issue has been spiritual things, uh, spiritual problems. And I believe coming out of this, you're going to have more spiritual questions about spiritual issues and not so much about the church. And I believe churches that are not only going to survive but thrive, and that's what we all want to do, Mm -hmm. are going to be churches who learn things from this epidemic and be ready to address them like loneliness, depression, anxiety, mental health problems. It's huge. Uh, Gen Z, 18 to 25, scores the highest of any generation has ever scored on the mental health problem scale. It's hard to believe that. It is. And this wasn't because of the virus. This goes back before the virus. And if pastors don't start working now, you can't wait until this is over. You better, be, uh, otherwise, the wave will, will, will break and you'll be left there standing, uh, the church will. Uh, you need to prepare yourself now for it. And this is why at josh.org, you go forward slash loneliness or depression or pornography or mental health or anxiety. There are scores of documents and understanding and teachings there that will help, one, will help pastors for sermon preparation. I've done their homework uh, for them, and they just need to think it through and organize it. But it's going to be spiritual issues more than the church issue yeah. uh, afterwards. And that, that could be healthy, uh, because I think it's going to give more believers who understand why they believe, not just what they believe, an opportunity to have an impact. 
One of the other troubling things that you point to is pornography addiction. Again, this predates COVID-19, but this circumstance could make things more uh, more complicated or more difficult for individuals. You write that one of the major crises of the COVID-19 pandemic will be the explosion of addiction to pornography. And then you ask the question, why? So I put that question to you. Why? Way back before this three months ago, I would put pornography as the number one epidemic globally. In every culture, not a culture or a continent, it's not a problem. There's probably not a church in the world where their number one problem is not pornography. You hear me on that? Not one church in the world. Now, pastors aren't even aware of it. Their people are. And when we went into lockdown globally, there's several things that trigger pornography in a man or woman. One is isolation. We got that with a lockdown. Loneliness, we have that with a lockdown. Depression, we have that with a lockdown. Uh, fear, we have that with a lockdown. Anxiety, we have that. Almost everything that feeds into porn, people are experiencing right now. And I think if you could do a barometer reading from three months ago and now, it's probably gone up 40% in the world. Man, that's huge. Mm. In two or three months, I believe. And when we come out of this, People are going to be so addicted to porn, and it's so much harder to break than heroin, cocaine, or anything, that I'm not sure the church should be ready for it or our educational uh, institutions. Uh, it's, it's so... Because, see, when one half second of looking at porn, it starts to change your brain physically, biologically. Can you imagine that? Mm. In a half second. It starts a six, six to nine minute, maximum 10 minute process to totally change your brain. And actually porn before it's a moral problem is almost a neurological brain problem. And so that's why I see a tremendous explosion of porn. And then Pornhub, there's 26 or 29 million pornographic websites. Pornhub, I think, is the largest or second largest in the world. And they're giving every country, recently to Italy, they've done it to Korea, they're doing the United States. They're giving every country one month free of the most expensive porn that's on the internet. All free for one month. And this is the type of porn, you look, you're hooked. If people are looking at porn before the lockdown, think of what they're doing now. And, uh, so that's another reason I did that document, and that's why you can go to jives.org forward slash porn or the porn epic and download 1,800 documented pages on porn broken up into 16 different documents. What is porn? How big is porn? What's the attraction to porn? Porn and the consequences. Porn in the brain. Porn in solutions. Porn in the church. Porn in work. All broken down for you. For a pastor... He's got anything he would need for a series on pornography. He just needs to take it, work at it, organize it, internalize it, and deliver it. You mentioned earlier that uh, one site, Pornhub, has exploited the situation by making what they produce available for free, knowing full well that once you have someone who is addicted, then they're very likely to subscribe if we fail as the church to address that issue and the others that you list in your document, what comes next? 
um, what are we likely to to see this missed opportunity that we have to to impact the the country that we're in, the culture that we're in? Uh, what will be the result if we fail to prepare ourselves as we ought? Georgine, I believe we have maybe four at the most five or six years globally for the church to take this on and adjust to it, or the global church will be marginalized. It'll lose most of its influence. I say that one because such a high percentage of pastors are addicted and a very high percentage of youth pastors. Christian leaders are addicted and they won't address the issue. And so I, I'm usually so optimistic, positive, but I'm not sure the church is going to rise up and address it. Mm. And if it doesn't, we will all pay a price and culture will. Uh, because porn, as Chuck Swindoll called me, he said, Josh, porn is the greatest cancer in the history of the church. We have never faced anything like pornography. Any moment, pornography is destroying more lives, more relationships, more churches, more pastors, more young people than anything has ever done simultaneously in history. And the thing is, porn is so available, it's one click away, 2.3 billion pages. And all over the world, you don't have to worry about it. It's about the only thing you don't have to translate. You don't translate a woman's breast, the human body, orgasm, everything else. You just look at it. In any culture, it communicates. That was a little graphic. <laughs> well, it was, but it's a topic that you can barely um, avoid being graphic. Um, well, I so appreciate the resources that you have made available. And as you pointed out, the homework has been done. The research has been done. It's now made available on your website so that we are essentially without excuse. For those who are leaders, there's a resource available so that you're prepared to address these issues as they emerge once we're back together, maybe even before then as we're using the Internet to, to communicate the gospel. Um, but also for those of us who are called to pray, we don't have positions of influence in the church necessarily, but we can pray. Um, your resource is available to all of us, and I am so grateful that you continue to call the church to greater things and have made uh, the work that you do available to all of us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And the church always comes around. It does. Sometimes it's a little late, but I believe my greatest heroes in life are pastors. Yes. And I believe pastors are going to rise up, maybe a little late, but address the issues. Hey, thank you. And you have a great day. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Once again, Josh McDowell, you can find his uh, information on his website, joshmcdowell.org. And there's all kinds of information there, and I would encourage you to take full advantage of it. Hey, you're listening to the Georgie Rice Show. We've got news and traffic. Uh, go ahead. It's just josh.org, not Josh McDowell. Josh.org. Josh.org. We've got news and traffic coming up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you on board with us. As you just uh, heard moments ago, Josh McDowell on what the church can expect post-COVID-19. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear that conversation, let me encourage you to check out the podcast because he had some very significant things to say about the church being prepared for the post-pandemic world, which really reflects an exaggeration, if you will, of the pre-pandemic world for which uh, we need to be prepared. 
Well, the first doses of a coronavirus vaccine have been injected into human patients. Pfizer, Inc. and Biotech announced on Tuesday the first doses of BNT162 vaccine program began in Germany last week, according to a company statement. The trial phase aims to enroll about 360 patients ages 18 to 55 once the younger group produces sound evidence of safety and immune um, genetici, or something very like that, uh, testing in older adults or those between ages 65 to 85 will then begin. The news comes as researchers have um, created an antibody that neutralizes SARS-CoV-2 in cells, offering the potential for prevention and treatment, according to a new study. Still, there is a grim uh, bit of news. A revised mortality model predicts coronavirus-related deaths in the U.S. will nearly double to 135,000 through August as states ease social distancing restrictions. Now, those figures have been challenged. It really depends on how those social distancing uh, restrictions are observed. Meanwhile, President Trump on Tuesday said Dr. Anthony Fauci will testify before the Senate, but that the White House will not allow him to testify in the House because he contends they are a bunch of Trump haters. And there's a mounting ep- there is mounting evidence that the novel coronavirus can be transmitted by asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic individuals. A new review by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says nearly all of the U.S. has been in lockdown to fight the COVID-19 spread. But newly published research by MIT economists argue that an optimally targeted lockdown could better protect the most vulnerable while also safeguarding the economy. And that's what we're attempting to work for toward an optimally targeted lockdown. Well, New York State is reporting more than 1,700 previously undisclosed deaths at nursing homes and adult care facilities as the state faces growing scrutiny on how it's protecting its most vulnerable residents during the coronavirus pandemic. California Governor Gavin Newsom has denied a public records request from the Los Angeles Times seeking details into a nearly $1 billion deal for protective masks from a Chinese car manufacturer. Newsom's office has been criticized over the lack of transparency into the contract for weeks. And Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar, in an interview on America's Newsroom, addressed the leaked FEMA document that projects far more new coronavirus cases than the White House forecast and nearly double the current daily death toll by the end of the month. We'll see what actually happens. And nearly 400 employees at a Missouri pork processing plant have been diagnosed with coronavirus, though all are asymptomatic. The United Kingdom appears to be now the hardest hit country in Europe after figures released on Tuesday show the official death toll from coronavirus surpassed 32,000. And in the first major challenge to the governor's stay-at-home order in the federal court, the U.S. District Judge has ruled that Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker's order is constitutional. And Nike has announced it plans to donate some 30,000 pairs of its Air Zoom Pulse shoes to healthcare heroes fighting the COVID-19 outbreak on the front lines. And taking a look at the uh, update for the state of Oregon from health officials, uh, cases of COVID-19, a new strain of coronavirus started popping up in the United States in January, but it wasn't until February the 28th that the first case was announced in Oregon. And in fact, we learned today that Oregon's first known coronavirus patient was released from hospital after two months. This Oregon resident, who was the first known case here, has officially been released from the hospital following a more than two-month-long battle with COVID-19. On Monday, Hector Calderon, a custodian at Forest Hills Elementary School in Lake Oswego, was transferred from Kaiser Permanente Westside Medical Center in Hillsboro to a skilled nursing facility, according to the Oregonian. The 46-year-old fell ill in late February, was listed as the state's first confirmed case of novel coronavirus on the 28th. 
At the time, he was thought to be the only the second patient in the U.S. to contract the novel virus via community spread, local outlets reported. Local news station KATU Channel 2 reported Calderon was sedated and intubated uh, at one point during his hospital stay. The Oregonian also reported he was one of the first patients to be treated with remdesivir, uh, Gilead Science's experimental antiviral drug that early results of the clinical study indicated can help spread a rather speed recovery of COVID-19 patients. Well, Oregon, once again, has not reported another death in the state. The total so far, 113. In Washington, the um, number stands at 841. The Oregon Health Authority is now releasing the number of coronavirus cases in each of Oregon's zip codes. Might be interesting reading. And Oregon's first known coronavirus patient to having been discharged from the hospital gives all a bit of hope. A southwest Portland nursing home where at least 28 people have died of COVID-19 has been shut down by the state for the time being. The Department of Human Services issued an emergency suspension of health care at Foster Creek's license to operate a nursing facility after at least 117 people there tested positive. Well, in Salem on Tuesday, a woman with a black mask covering her mouth and nose opened the door to her salon and let a man inside to the cheers of strangers who gathered on the sidewalk. It was an act of defiance, and she said, desperation. The woman in the mask is Lindsey Graham, owner of Glamour Salon in downtown Salem. Tuesday morning, she let in her first customer since the governor's executive order closing businesses and enforcing social distancing. She observed social distancing while doing her job. Her reopening of the store violated that order, but she said she needed to provide for her family. I can't speak for other businesses. I know they need to make a living. If they can open their business safely, I would encourage that. I can only speak for myself, and what I need to do is provide for my family. A spokesperson from the governor's office said she is aware of the salon opening and that it violated the order. She called the reopening irresponsible and unfortunate and added the business owners are putting the public at risk. Violating the governor's order is a misdemeanor, and the penalty could be up to 30 days in jail, a fine of $1,200, or both. Salem police said they tried to contact Graham to talk about the crowd on her sidewalk, but that she did not answer the phone. They took no other action. OSHA would not say whether they're going to pursue action against Graham, but did point out that a willful violation of their rules carries a minimum fine of $8,900. Now, as you know, business owners are not eligible for the same kind of um, unemployment benefits. The money that the federal government has made available is not available to them. It's only available to their employees. And she simply said she needs to feed her family. One can understand that level of desperation. Meanwhile, in Dallas... In Texas, not in Oregon, Shelley Luther defied the local state order there and a judge is restraining order and operating her business during the pandemic. So this is another example of what uh, these owners are calling desperation and a need to feed their children. This Dallas salon owner will spend a week in jail after she was found in contempt of court Tuesday for violating an order to close her salon during the pandemic. In addition, she was fined $7,000 for continuing to operate her business in violation of the judge's temporary restraining order. She was taken into custody, custody rather, immediately after hearing uh, the hearing and booked into the Dallas um, uh, jail, like other businesses deemed non-essential. Uh, she was forced to close on the 22nd of March after the county enacted the stay-at-home order. She reopened on the 24th of April despite that order and tore up a cease-and-desist letter from the county judge, Clay Jenkins, at a demonstration the very next day. Well, the temporary restraining order was signed in April by the district judge, uh, but Luther continued to operate the business. In a hearing that was broadcast live on YouTube on Tuesday, she said she had no choice but to open her business. 
She said she hadn't earned income since the county's stay-at-home order set in March. She applied for one of the federal loans aimed at helping small businesses but didn't receive it until Sunday. I couldn't feed my family, she says, and my stylist couldn't feed theirs. She was holding a phone to her face from the witness stand so that the court reporter could hear her through her mask, which she wore while working and in the hearing. Before issuing his ruling, the judge said that she was uh, being selfish and irresponsible. She said, in lieu of the... uh, that feeding my kids is not selfish. She wasn't in it to make a fortune. She was in it to feed her family. If you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, she said, then I'll accept your order. Then please go ahead with your decision, but I'm not going to shut the salon. Well, minutes earlier, the governor had announced during a news conference that barbershops and salons across Texas could reopen on Friday. She's incarcerated for seven days. Meanwhile, in the city of Portland, in what I consider a rather confusing decision, the city commissioner, Chloe Udaly, has instituted a massive roadblocking project by erecting 80 barrels throughout the city streets to close 100 miles of street as a way to force people to walk and bike and provide them more room during the outbreak. It appears that designated delivery zones will be set up uh, as the roadblocking may impede delivery of goods to homes, which they need. Part of the project is also to slow down traffic. This comes at a time when Portland's freeways road traffic is down nearly 50 percent. This comes to a city where they have over 300 miles of uh, bicycle infrastructure paths, having earned the most uh, bike friendly uh, in the world label. This uh, is so utterly ridiculous to me. And yet that is so common for the city of Portland. Hey, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And we're trying to keep up with the numbers that are coming out of the state of Oregon and Washington on COVID-19 deaths. And I want to update you on the latest. Apparently, Oregon is reporting two more COVID-19 deaths, an 88-year-old from Multnomah County and a 95-year-old from Polk County, both males. Uh, the Oregon Health Authority on Wednesday reported These two new deaths bringing Oregon's death toll to 115. So, again, trying to keep uh, up to date on that. Uh, President Trump on Wednesday said the coronavirus task force would continue indefinitely following indications from his administration that officials were considering winding the group down. However, the president said the task force would shift its focus to vaccines and safety uh, reopening the country. Now, the World Health Organization, they're being accused of ignoring their own guidelines put in place after the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s, which call for the organization to investigate reports of potential new coronavirus cases from the start to prevent any chance of a pandemic. And private employers slashed 20.2 million jobs in April as the coronavirus-induced lockdown ravaged the U.S. economy. That's according to ADP, National Employment Report, released on Wednesday. It was the largest decline on record since the survey started back in 2002. And the head of a group that represents thousands of New York City landlords pushed back against a growing nationwide push to cancel rent payments amid the coronavirus pandemic, saying the rent strikes will create an economic domino effect and asking local and federal government officials to intervene. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture is buying some $470 million worth of meat, dairy, and produce, as well as seafood from American farmers, and donating it to food banks this summer. Millions of Americans are experiencing food insecurities during the pandemic, and while farmers struggle with, sur- with surplus at rest- uh, as restaurants and other food service entities remain closed, the uh, USDA, they're stepping in. And tell others um, how your 
having an impact in your neighborhood by giving encouragement. And tell us if you have some um, good news stories to share. We'd love to hear from you at Georgine Rice at kpdq.com. With some states requiring residents to wear face masks in public to help stop the spread of the novel coronavirus, at least one mask could actually do more harm than good. An, a ni- an uh, N95 respirator. Huh. Something to check out. Well, hundreds of meat inspectors throughout the U.S. have been diagnosed or exposed to the coronavirus that at least three have died, according to a new report. And Kim Jong-un disappeared from public view over the past few weeks because of concerns about the coronavirus, not for any heart-related surgery. That's according to South Korea's intelligence agency. And as European countries began to ease coronavirus restrictions, France warned its citizens that they may need to scale back vacation plans this summer as international travel likely will remain limited. And Disney Park's chief medical officer has outlined several enhanced safety measures its U.S. resorts are considering ahead of reopening to the public, including plans for phased reopening and new physical distancing guidelines. If I'm not mistaken, I think James Blinn might have been planning a trip to the happiest place on Earth. Well, for decades, the vice presidential selection process has been, had an air of cloak and dagger to it. The party's nominees would say little about their thinking. The would-be running mates would reveal even less, and an elaborate game of subterfuge would unfold that mostly captivated political insiders and usually had little bearing on the election. They pick somebody, you like them, you don't, you cast your vote. But a convergence of forces, according to one news source, has transformed Joseph Biden's search for a running mate on the Democratic ticket. His pledge to pick a woman immediately limited the pool of potential candidates and intensified the competition. That decision, coupled with Mr. Biden's um, tendency to think out loud about his options, has remade the tryout period into an unusual public audition. And the coronavirus outbreak ensured that It's taking place entirely online and on TV. And Mr. Biden himself is increasingly pushed into the political foreground. The overwhelming reason that his choice may be the most consequential in decades. The expectation downplayed, but not exactly denied by the Biden campaign, that the 77 year old uh, would be uh, one term president. If that turns out to be the case, his running mate now could well be the leading Democratic ticket in four years. Said Mr. Biden during an online fundraiser last week, I view myself as a transition candidate, likening his would-be presidential appointments to an athletic team stocking its roster with promising talent. You got to get more people on the bench that are ready to go in. Put me uh, in, coach. I'm ready to play, he says. Well, there's a lot of people. There are a lot of people that are ready to play, women and men. He's narrowed it to women only. And if he holds true to that, which he must now do, The ramifications of Mr. Biden's choice will be profound. Even if he loses in November, his decision will all but anoint a woman as the party's next front runner and potentially shape its agenda for the next decade, depending on if she's a centrist or someone more progressive. He being 77, I think people are going to um, look to see who is the person who could be the next president. That's a quote from Harry Reid, the Democratic former Senate majority leader, calling Mr. Biden's decision the most significant in any election cycle He's seen. So Biden's choice of running make has momentous implications, and it will be interesting to watch from a social distance, of course. Well, in other news, researchers from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis have successfully disabled a gene in specific mouse cells, preventing mice from becoming obese even after being fed a high fat diet. 
Now, I think this, along with the vaccine, is the answer to COVID-19, as some of us, we're not going to name names, are enjoying the bounty of being home. Let's leave it at that. Well, macrophages, uh, vital inflammatory cells, which are responsible for detecting, engulfing, and destroying pathogens, were blocked by the scientists. And since obesity is correlated with uh, chronic low-grade inflammation, the researchers tested it, um, if reducing inflammation could help control weight gain and obesity. Well, the study was published in April in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. According to one of the doctors, the principal investigator of the study, and a professor of pathology and immunology, their study was developed, uh, has developed rather, a proof of concept that it's possible to regulate weight gain by moderating the activity of the inflammatory cells. They add that it might work in several ways by their team, uh, but their team believe that it might be able to control obesity and its complications by managing inflammation better. Now, inflammation is an issue that goes far beyond um, obesity. It affects one's heart and in so many other um, areas that we're completely unaware of as average you know, humans walking around. But this is a rather interesting uh, study and find. And again, for those of us who are, um, you know, I'm just saying hypothetically, those of us who are carrying that extra COVID weight, this is a uh, helpful study that we hope will come to fruition sooner rather than later. Hope springs eternal. Christians United for Israel say that as the world continues to combat the spread of COVID-19, Israel remains on the front lines of this raging battle. A nation driven by the Jewish principle of tikkun, olam, require uh, repairing the world. Israel has committed herself to her people's security as well as the safety and well-being of the world at large. Well, they write that history reveals a precedent of accusing the Jews for the evils of the world. During the Black Death in the mid-1300s, there were significant uh, pogroms. The Strasbourg Valentine's Day Massacre, not the one here, was among the worst, occurring in 1349, during which 2,000 Jews were burnt alive. The situation grew so unbearable that reports sprang up of Jews taking their own lives to avoid persecution. But anti-Semitism is not just then and there, it's here and now. In the United States, extremist groups, including neo-Nazis and other white supremacist groups, have encouraged members to spread COVID-19 to police officers and Jews, according to an FBI report. Synagogues in Maryland, Massachusetts, and Alabama have been defaced with anti-Semitic slurs and swastikas. Additionally, an anti-social distancing protester in Cleveland held a sign with a rat, a Star of David, and the colors of the Israeli flag, which read, The Real Plague. However, this shocking upsurge in anti-Semitism is sadly not limited to the United States. In France, um, Alien Mondino, head of a party, lists uh, belonging uh, to the far-right National Rally political party, posted a video on social media trying to link Jews to the spread of the coronavirus. Not surprisingly, rhetoric from Iran's leadership via the media have been classically and disgustingly anti-Semitic. Press TV, a semi-official government station, broadcast a number of reports claiming Zionists were behind the coronavirus. Meanwhile, Iranian-backed Spanish-language Hispan TV published a report claiming the virus is the result of a Zionist plot. Uh, they've also been quoted as saying the virus has an Israeli tilt. Why did they do it? for revenge and frustration. Well, this is the world that we live in. Certainly people flock together and support one another, but there are other uh, elements of the human nature that reveals itself in crises as well, anti-Semitism being one of them. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this um, Wednesday afternoon. I hope I have time this evening to put the last plants into my garden. This is the first year in I don't know how many years that I actually have planted everything that I intend to plant for the season. And my garden is already looking quite lovely. This never happens. I'm never home early enough for that to happen. It's usually June before I have time because there are events during this season that I would otherwise be involved in. And I get home late in the afternoon. There's There are some aspects of sheltering in place, working from home that I'm really enjoying. And that's uh, that's definitely one of them. Anyway, back to, uh, <laughs> to our business at hand here. Acting Director of the National Intelligence, uh, Richard Grinnell, has told the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff the transcripts from the panel's Russia probe. Yeah, that's still uh, ongoing. The back and forth on the Russia probe. Uh, are cleared for public release as the House Republicans demand access to those materials. They're not done with it yet either. Well, Grinnell penned a letter uh, this week to Schiff, uh, who, Schiff rather, who is a Democrat out of California, notifying him that transcripts of all 53 interviews, which add up to more than 6,000 pages in total, related to foreign interference in the 2016 alleged, uh, election, can be released. All of the transcripts with our required redactions can be released to the public without any concerns of disclosing classified material, he wrote to Schiff in a letter dated May the 4th. Well, the committee in September voted in unanimous and bipartisan fashion to release the transcripts of witness uh, witness interviews that they conducted during the panel's Russia probe. Well, in November of last year, or excuse me, 2018, the committee transmitted the transcripts to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence for an interagency classification review to prevent the inadvertent disclosure of classified information. Well, Grinnell, in a letter to Mr. Schiff, said that the review of the 43 um, of the 53 transcripts was completed in June of 2019. And as of today, the interagency review of uh, the remaining transcripts has been completed as well. Adding that pursuant to your guidance, these transcripts have not been shared with the White House. Well, in the interest of transparency and accountability, I urge you to honor your previous public statements and your committee's unanimous vote on this matter. Now, he's been very reluctant to make this information available. Apparently, this is uh, the uh, the last um, roadblock uh, that he can point to to avoid making that uh, information available. Well, House Republicans have accused Schiff of blocking the Russia probe transcripts and this week demanded that he give them access to the interview transcripts. A House Intelligence Committee spokesman on Wednesday said that the panel received Grinnell's letter on Tuesday after more than a year of unnecessary delay. The ODNI has finally concluded its protracted classification review of the committee's transcripts, and it also appears the White House has now abandoned its improper insistence on reviewing key transcripts, which the committee appropriately rejected, the spokesman said. We are now reviewing the proposed redactions from the ODNI based on classification, law enforcement sensitivity, or items ODNI requests for uh, be for official use only, according to the spokesman again for the committee. Uh, suggesting that they are preparing to make them available, but first making the political point that the president, who had also requested to see these documents, uh, did so improperly and uh, using that as part of the explanation for the delay. I'm not sure what the um, uh, the House Republicans intend to do with this information, except perhaps to reveal um, that things were said that were not made available during the hearings that might exonerate the president or at least put a different light or spin on some of those um, elements. But nonetheless, apparently that information will at some point in the not too distant future, one would assume should be made available to the public. That would of course include the uh, committee in the house and the president himself. 
want to remind you that if you are looking for stimulating um, content during this time of um, sheltering in place, Salem Media Group is uh, jump into the movie business by streaming No Safe Spaces. Well, not making the movie, but making it available to you. It's a documentary about free speech from comedian Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. It was one of 2019's top earning political documentaries and the number one political documentary on its face. And now it's available to watch at home. Critics called it uh, vital urgent, smart, and one of the most important documentaries you need to see. It tells disturbing stories of how America is becoming a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas, but does it in an entertaining and powerful way, which is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, If you wonder about the depth of political correctness on college campuses and beyond that eschews free speech, you're going to find No Safe Spaces eye-opening, disturbing, informative, and challenging. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you cry. But most importantly, it will make you think. To tell you uh, uh, more about this, uh, you can go to nosafespaces.com. It's going to cost $19.95 for you know the average Joe. But for KPDQ listeners, you can use the discount code SAVE25 for a 25% discount. That's nosafespaces.com and the discount code SAVE25 for a 25% discount for KPDQ listeners. Nicolas Maduro, the embattled leader of Venezuela, said Monday that authorities in Caracas captured 13 terrorists, including two U.S. citizens in a failed invasion attempt that he said was no doubt orchestrated by the Trump administration. Well, in a nationwide broadcast appearing on national television or state television, Maduro held up two U.S. passports that he said had been recovered during the attempted raid. He read off the names and the birth dates of the two Americans. They were playing Rambo, he said, according to The Guardian. They were playing Hero. Well, the two U.S. citizens were identified as Luke Dunham and um, Aaron Barry, both former U.S. Special Forces soldiers. Video emerged that uh, purported to show Venezuelan authorities with their captives lined up at a seaside uh, marina. Maduro said the U.S. government is fully and completely involved in this defeated raid, which it was not. The Associated Press reported he praised citizens from a fishing community for uh, cornering one of the groups he described as professional American mercenaries, hence the word mercenary, not uh, directed by the U.S. government. The U.S. State Department did not immediately respond to an after-hours email, but the Washington Post reported that U.S. officials and Um, Juan Guaido, the leader of the Venezuelan opposition, denied any involvement with the action called Operation Gideon. We're talking 10 people uh, attempting to unseat uh, Maduro. The Guardian uh, reported that Guido's uh, team denied any connection with the Florida-based ex-Green Beret, um, who uh, said earlier on Monday that his mission intended to detain uh, Maduro and liberate Venezuela. It uh, was an ill-prepared, ill-timed effort that was unsuccessful. And uh, both the State Department and uh, Mr. Guido have denied any involvement in it. Those U.S. Uh, two U.S. Um, servicemen are, or former servicemen are currently being held. Uh, their their uh, future, their disposition is not yet known at this time. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to be back in a minute to wrap things up. Uh, we're going to offer some things you can uh, commit to doing while we wait for things to return to some semblance of normalcy. And also remind you that Thursday, tomorrow, is the National Day of Prayer. The theme this year is Habakkuk 2.14. More on that when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, we talked with Josh McDowell on what the church can expect post-COVID-19, some of the significant challenges we need to prepare for and begin to address even now. You can check that out at josh.org, and there's a link to all kinds of information available to become better educated and, again, prepared. He also provided um, uh, some suggestions on things that we can do now as we Uh, live through this very unusual time, at least for this generation. Um, He makes the point that your prayers really do make a difference. There's a lot of uncertainty around us, and we're facing uh, similar situations, although the details are different depending on our our, um, our disposition. But it's important to lift our neighbors and our nation in prayer. Tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer, and it's a great opportunity for us all together to do just that. Fellow believers, Christian leaders, a time dedicated to prayer for this nation. Um, Wherever you are, you can join this virtual event streamed live from the Billy Graham Library and led by the National Day of Prayer President Kathy Branzell and Will Graham. Together, we're going to pray that God will be glorified in our nation, our communities, and our families. Uh, We'll also ask him to help us shine the light on Jesus Christ in the midst of the difficult days people all over America are experiencing right now. And the theme this year is Habakkuk 2.14. In the NIV version, it reads, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, Josh McDowell says there are three things that we as Christ followers can commit to doing. Uh, What an interesting time we live in. None of us began the year expecting to be quarantined in our homes. In fact, think about the start of the new year and all of the plans that you had made Uh, The things that you were looking forward to, the commitments that you had made, the events you were planning on attending, the things you were training for and anticipating being a part of, uh, the family milestones, the graduations, the, um, you know, all of the things that happen in the course of a year. And we all imagined that these things would unfold in just the way that we had planned for them to unfold. And yet one single small virus, a novel coronavirus changed everything. And in virtually a moment Life as we knew it changed dramatically here and all around the globe. It reminds us that when we um, anticipate the future, that we, sell if the, that we say in our hearts, if the Lord wills and I live, I will go here and I will go there, as we are suggest, we're told in Scripture, we ought. But many people are asking, how do we as Christians respond during a time like this? We want to be uh, a light. We want to be effective. We want to minister to those who need us. And again, Josh McDowell, who we spoke with earlier in the program, offered three things that uh, we as Christ followers can commit to doing. One is to proclaim hope in Christ. It's a hope that we can experience and enjoy now, but it's a hope that transcends and goes beyond here and now. In all circumstances, we remain committed to pointing others to the hope found only in Jesus. That's our calling and privilege as believers, and we must make every effort to offer others hope, to offer them hope that only he can provide. During this crisis, we have a great opportunity to share the truth of Christ with the world, and I think people are more open to receive him than ever before. In our conversation, Josh McDowell mentioned that people are interested in spiritual things, but they're not necessarily looking for answers in the church. But we have the opportunity to provide uh, answers and hope in Christ. Another thing that we can commit to doing is trusting Christ with our fears, our own fears and our anxieties. A verse that comes to mind, of course, is Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Whether that's isolated in your home, as you make your way away from your home, out to 
find the essentials that you need or to encourage someone from a social distance. He is with us wherever we go. As followers of Christ, we're called to be his living example in the midst of any storm, including this one. We can submit our fears and anxieties to him, knowing that he will be with us, that he cares for us. He is God over this storm, over this pandemic, over every situation in our lives. And how we trust him in this crisis is a powerful testimony to the world. Trust Christ with our own fears and anxiety. He cares for us. And the third thing we can commit ourselves to doing Today, an overwhelming number of people uh, are ruled by anxiety and depression. We need to remember our communities. We can remind them uh, that they are not alone. As believers, we are called to fellowship and to love one another, and we can do that in creative ways in the 21st century. And though we are encouraged to stay in our homes and practice social distancing, God has given us amazing technology, our smartphones, FaceTime, Skype, and other platforms, to be able to connect with and support and show Christ's loves to others, putting pen to paper, mailing cards and letters and things of encouragement, picking up the phone. Think of the people in your life that you can encourage during this unprecedented time. Remember the elderly and those who are most vulnerable. Be like Jesus and reach out. Take notice of those in desperate need of community. Offer them hope. Um, As has been said many times, relationships matter. When we deepen our relationships with others, we begin to learn where they need Jesus and how we can share our faith with them as we walk with him. During this crisis, Um, There are many who are working on providing resources that you can find online. Josh McDowell, uh, again, who we talked with earlier in the day, he's provided resources. They say that they'd be honored to pray with you if you need help along these lines. And they're here to serve and help in any way that they can. So josh.org is the uh, web address, the resources that he made mention of during our conversation uh, for church leaders in particular regarding the uh, the issues that will be most prevalent post Uh, COVID-19. But as well, if you're looking for resources for encouragement or you're looking for uh, opportunity uh, to pray with uh, with others as well. So wanted to mention that to you. And if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Josh McDowell early in the program, I would highly encourage you to check that out on the podcast. He had some really significant things to say about um, how this uh, pandemic is going to shape our future. And as the church, we how we can be prepared to address Um, the fallout from this pandemic that really began much earlier than the pandemic, but has just been exacerbated as a result of it. So keep that in mind. And once again, um, the National Day of Prayer is always the first Thursday in May, and that's coming up tomorrow, Thursday, May the 8th. There's a special virtual event from 8 to 10 p.m., and you can join with Christians all across America for that special time uh, of prayer. Now I say 8 to uh, 10 p.m. I think that's Eastern time, and I'm not entirely certain if uh, it's 8 to 10 p.m. our time or if it's 5 to, you can do the math. Anyway, 5 to 8. Um, you might check that out at the Billy Graham Association's website, but uh, your prayers make a difference. And with this uh, uncertainty, this important time, we can lift up our neighbors and our nation in prayer, and we can do that together during this special um, uh, live stream event. Wherever you are, you can join this virtual event. It's going to be streamed live, uh, streamed live from the Billy Graham Library uh, and led by the National Day of Prayer President, Kathy Branzell and William um, Graham. Uh, we're going to pray that God would be glorified in our nation, our communities, and our families. They're also going to ask him to help us shine the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of these difficult days to people all over America uh, and what they're experiencing right now. Uh, the theme, as I mentioned, is Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God 
as the waters cover the sea. And while many across the nation may not be able to gather in large groups this year for prayer, God still hears and honors our prayers. You can join online Thursday, May the 7th. And here I have the confirmation. It's May the 7th from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. So that would be 5 to 8 p.m. Pacific time as Will Graham uh, co-hosts the National Day of Prayer live from the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. Featured speakers this year, Kathy Branzell, uh, Nick Hall, Michael W. Smith, Robert Morris, Rick Warren, Harry Jackson, Luis Palau, Andrew Palau, Kanita Benson, Billy Wilson, uh, Gabriel Odom, and Greg Steyer. Uh, James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power uh, as it is working. So we are reminded that uh, when we pray together, that we have significant impact. Um, the good news is God loves you as much as he gave his uh, His only son to die for our sins and that that love has not diminished or faded. It hasn't been distracted. It hasn't uh, withdrawn in any measure that we can all come together in, in prayer because we have been given access to the throne of grace by virtue of the sacrifice made for us by Jesus Christ. So again, that's coming up tomorrow from 5 to 8 p.m. Pacific time, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time, Will Graham will co-host the National Day of Prayer live from the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. I know events typically take place on the steps of courthouses and in churches and all uh, around our communities. That will very likely not be the case this year as social distancing makes that improbable. Uh, But this is an event that we can join together with those all across the country. So I wanted to make sure you are aware of that. I want to thank James Blend for Uh, Producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation with some luminaries in our community. Dennis Hayes, the general manager of a cluster of uh, stations, including this one, Salem Communications. Samuel Hakeem, who is the uh, president of Redeeming the Nations, and Bill McLeod with Mission Connection. We're going to talk about uh, prayer and uh, how we can pray Uh, on this National Day of Prayer. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.